it was like eight grand to tear these houses down and throw them in the dump. And some guy walks up to me one day and says, you know, I'll buy each of these for four grand each and I'll worry about taking, moving them. I said, well, so I can make eight grand instead of losing. That's a 16 grand swing. Hello, and welcome to Real Estate Investing Deal Deep Dive. I'm your host, Jeremy. The Deal Deep Dive offers lessons learned from Canadian investors while scaling their portfolios. If you're looking to scale your investments, listen to stories from those who have already been there and what they did in your shoes. Darcy, welcome to the show. Hello, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Really, really good. Sounds good. So just before we get into today's show, I do want to inform the listeners that they need to really listen to some of the words that our guest has to say. Darcy, you have, in my opinion, one of the best investment strategies out there, period. It is fast, it's efficient, and it requires very little headache. So I really hope that people listen to some of your credences. Good. I wish everybody was like you. That was was really great. Thanks. So Darcy, can you tell us who you are and how did you get started in real estate? Yeah, so my name is Darcy Marler. I'm based out of Calgary, and I've been investing in real estate for 21 years now, full-time. In that time, I've done a ton of stuff. I've owned like close to 100 properties, 240 units. I've had close to 1,000 tenants in my life. I've done all the other strategies, fix and flip, long and short-term rentals, condo conversions, all the stuff. I've also been doing a lot of stuff in land development, new construction. I built 45 homes. I was instrumental in getting the racetrack, the horse track and casino built here in Calgary. I've written four books on real estate investing, and I've got an online course on property development. So I'm keep busy. I know I've done a little bit of stuff. <laughs> a little bit of stuff is right. A little bit of everything. Jesus. Yeah. So I got, I got focus problems. Yeah, that's <laughs> How are you focusing currently? I, you know, what? we'll dive into that in a little while. I know, yeah. I know you got tons of stuff to lay out. Yeah. So where are you currently investing? Basically, I'm I'm practicing what I preach with my new course. So I'm actually looking at Edmonton actually as as a really great place to to do some of the stuff, and it'll make more sense, I guess, as we go into it. Kind of what I'm doing, but yeah, I'm looking at Edmonton. I'm also looking at doing pure raw land development down in the United States, either like Florida or Texas, kind of thing. I, I really like those two opportunities. There's massive movement in the United States. People are just, you know, politically the left and the right, the red states and the blue states, people are literally moving. Like I am i don't like it here, wherever I am, typically a blue state, a Democrat state, I'm going to go to where people think like me and they're literally moving. So I, I don't know, maybe by 2050, you'll, you'll literally have Democrat states, you'll have Republican states and that's where you live. It's, it's actually pretty interesting. But, so, but, but that's as a land developer, that's kind of what you want to see, right? You want to see uh, consistency. You want to see things. Texas is supposed to double its population by 2050, right? And as a guy who, who's done most of his investing in Alberta with the up and the down and the up and the down, give me consistency. Give me, give me that. I'm all over that for sure. So uh, yeah, doubling their population—that's huge. Texas is yes. already one of the biggest states there Texas is. Already. Yeah, and, and and so there's a massive. If you look at the numbers, there's a massive move from. The blue states, California, New York, Chicago, Massachusetts, to places like Florida and Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, Nevada. And the, the common the common theme is it's cheaper. There's no state tax. It's warm. You know, you can buy a you know, 10 foot by 10 foot apartment in New York City for, you know, three million, or you can 
spend 350 grand and get a really, really nice house in Texas, right? So, I mean, people are saying, okay, well, that sounds like a good deal. So you're really seeing a mass movement down there. And that's why I say, like, I just want consistency. I'm tired of the effort that at my age, I don't want to try to guess what the, what the world's going to be like in two or three years. I just want to, I just kind of want to get some, I want to know that it's going to be consistently okay. Everybody's moving to Florida and Texas. Sounds good. And I'm a big fan of consistency here myself. Yeah. So how did you get into land development? I started off like most people doing flips. And when a flip didn't work, the backup plan was rentals. So flips and rentals, that's really all we're ever taught. And going back 2002, 2003, I had this flip at just a 1950s house. I was going to just repair it. The guy next to me passed away. So I bought the next one off his son. I was going to flip that too. And I said, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to, to build new. I, I'd never done it before, but I kind of always wanted to. And, uh, you know, God protects the stupid and the innocent. I'm not sure which I was. But anyway, so <laughs> I ended up, actually ended up moving both of those houses off instead of tearing them. Actually, funny story there. So I was, I'd got the quote. It was like eight grand to tear these houses down and throw them in the dump. And some guy walks up to me one day and says, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll buy each of these for four grand each. And I'll worry about taking moving them. I said, well, so I can make eight grand instead of losing. That's a 16 grand swing. Sign me up. Moving day comes, the moving company comes, they put the massive I-beams up and put them on the truck. It's actually a really cool thing to, to see houses being moved. It, it's very, very, very cool. And I'm talking to the owner of the, the moving company. And he says, you know, I'd have bought these for 15 grand each, right? I said, what? He says, yeah, that guy there, all he does is once a week, he goes down to city hall pulls the record for all the demolition permits for the week. Then he goes to the person like you and he buys them for four grand. Then I buy them from him for 15 grand. Like, so next time skip the middleman, right? So I could have made 30 <laughs> instead of eight, but whatever. I, I was still happy with my, my plus 16. But anyway, so anyway, so I moved these two off. So I had two side-by-side -side lots, nice pie-shaped lots. I subdivided those into two. So now I had four lots. Two of those already had utilities going to the original houses. So I put utilities in the other two. I could have sold that. That's one of the strategies I teach in my course is, is, is sell those lots to a builder. I decided to actually go ahead and build. And so I built four houses. I built two single family homes on the outside with a duplex in the middle. Turned out really pretty, really nice. And then, so yeah, that was kind of my first foray into, into kind of land development, new construction, that kind of world. And I didn't know anything about anything there was no books this is the early 2000s there's no courses there's no there's no darcy teaching you how to do it right so i mean so uh, yeah i was just kind of skinnier teeth learning and, and you know if you make a mistake you write a check to somebody to fix it right so that's that's, that's how i learned so. was there many mistakes made on that one i made a big one actually yeah so i didn't know i laugh about it now not at the time but anyway so i didn't <laughs> understand what uh, acrylic stucco versus conventional stucco was Conventional stucco, they kind of throw it on acrylic. They take more time to, to make a really, really smooth finish. So obviously that costs more, right? So I'm selling, I'm a builder. So I'm actually going to sell to the families that live there. I realize I got to have a website. So there's a guy three blocks away that's doing the same thing. So I cut and paste his information from his website to mine. I make all the changes. So, you know, it, it's, here's the thickness of the, or the diameter of the pipe. This is how the thick the concrete floor is going to be so all that stuff becomes actually part of the of the contract because the house isn't built yet right so to get a pre-spec home the people that are buying want some some assurity of the quality that's gonna get get put into the house right so as part of the contract you've got actually the blueprint and then you've got this amendment is the actual all the specs right 
So I went through and modified it to, to my specs. He had acrylic stucco. I left it there. I should have said conventional. And what's the difference? Well, on four houses and four separate garages in the back, the difference is about 80 grand, to be honest with you. So it was a pretty big mistake. Yeah. So I ended, I was contractually obligated now to do the, the nicer version over and above what my budget had been. So again, lessons learned. Get a mentor. Instead <laughs> of figure this stuff out yourself. 80 grand. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's a pretty big swing. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad to hear you uh, made it through that though. It's all, it's all water under the bridge now. <laughs> That's good. That's good. One of the best things about being in real estate, as long as you have anyways, everything that you did learn and got the opportunity to learn from, you yeah. know not to do again. So I know not to do again. Yeah, that's the key. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you don't do it a second time. So. <laughs> Sounds fair. I, I used to laugh. I used to be a computer guy, right? And if I screwed up a couple of times, you know, I, I accidentally deleted some information off a client's machine, right? Okay, well, you're staying late at your own cost to fix it, right? You're not really, it's not really money out of pocket. It's just lost time. If you make a mistake in real estate, you're writing a check to somebody to to fix your error, right? Like, so crap. And so the trick is not to write that same check twice, but yeah, that's how you learn, <laughs> writing checks. Very true. So we'll hop into our first segment here. What was the best deal you've ever done? What was the plan and what went right or wrong? So after that, I did a, I did a seven acre land development deal. And then I actually built the houses as well, right? So there was, I've done some flips at this time, rentals. I'm not liking the rentals. I've done this new construction thing. I like that. What am I going to do next? So I, I, I go visit my parents and they live in one of these bungalow villa plus 55 kind of retirement villas, right? So bungalow villas, right? Oh, I can do this again. God protecting the naive and the stupid. So anyway, so I, I, I source seven acres of land here in Calgary and it was zoned a single family home. And so I changed that to allow duplexes. And the, the density was one to two units per acre. And I changed that to three to five. So what's the difference? Well, the difference is as a land developer, before on that size of lot, I could have done 14 lots. Afterwards, I can do 36. As a builder, I can build 14 single family homes. Afterwards, I can build 36 duplexes. So you see there's a, a, a rise in value of the land. I haven't done anything yet, but I've increased the value of the land. So actually, I've, you know, at that point, I was actually offered a $400,000 profit to just walk away and, and, and sell it to another guy. Looking back, if I had that same opportunity, I'd do that all day long today. But I went ahead, no, I want to do this. So I actually, you know, cleared the land, put the pipe in the ground, subdivided into 36 lots, did all the legal part there, you know, put in the curb and the gutter and the sidewalks and built the internal road. Put, You know, you can pick, there's different style of streetlights. Who knew that, right? You can actually, there's multiple styles of streetlights that you can, that match the, the look and feel of your development. Who knew? Anyway, these are the things you do. So I, so I did that. And again, I, I could have sold those lots to builders, but I decided to actually go ahead and build the 36 units there. So that was, you know, a really big project. But people ask me now, one of the things that takes a long time, right? Like even if it went well and it didn't, because I got caught in the 2006 boom and then the 2007, 2008 housing crisis. So massive boom, massive bust, managed to make it out alive, but barely, but one of the things that really Alberta has taught me over the years is in and out quick, right? Like economies change, interest rates change, governments change, government policies change, 
just all of a sudden life's going good. And then, you know, life kind of kicks in the gut. So in and out quick is, is what I do. So basically there's three parts to that, to any land development deal. There's the, the upfront paperworky type stuff, changing zoning and density. There's the pipe in the ground, build the internal road kind of thing. And then there's the construction of the house. So don't do all three. Like there's a reason why land developers develop and builders build. And I found out why, because it just takes too long. So my my advice to my students in that is pick a lane. You can do very well just by changing zoning and density and doing that kind of stuff. If you're passionate about putting pipe in the ground, do that. And if you want to build, by all means, do that. But pick a lane and go hard and, and don't try to be all things to, to all people. So again, lesson learned. <laughs> Sounds fair. Which one are you currently pursuing? I'm, I'm interested in doing raw land development down in the United States, so Texas and Florida. And then I'm actually looking in here in Calgary and Edmonton to do some of the shorter kind of just paperworky stuff, the in and out, just change zoning and density or, or, you know, finding oversized lots. What can I do with that? So that's kind of where I'm at at this point. I've, I've, I've really got no interest in physically building houses anymore. Like I'm, I kind of bought that t-shirt. And so I'm, I, but I always did like the land part of it. Like I like, I guess I grew up on a farm, so maybe that part of land is in my blood, but I like I like dirt. So that's kind of where my thoughts are now. Sounds fair. Out of curiosity, whereabouts was the farm? Just outside of Edmonton, actually. So just north of Shore Park. So east of east of it, east of Edmonton there. Very interesting. A couple of our podcast guests actually came from that area as well. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Seems like that's a good place to learn about real estate investing. I guess. Yeah. No, like I said, I've done stuff in about nine different jurisdictions all over Alberta. So uh, yeah, I've kind of seen the good and bad of of what uh, bureaucracy can be. So out of curiosity, whereabouts have you invested? I know you've mentioned Edmonton and Calgary. So Edmonton, Calgary, Red Deer. And then I've also done stuff in Medicine Hat. I've done stuff in a little town called Caroline, which is a hamlet. That's actually where Kurt Browning, the figure skater came from. The, the hockey arena is named after him so it's a hamlet like 500 people and i owned four fourplexes there so i and by my own accord i, I think i controlled about 40 percent of the rental market in caroline alberta so i was i was kind of the boss hopper for caroline. and then i've also done lacombe and i've done stuff in parkland or sorry foothills county and the county of rocky view and then strathcona county as How well does... so i've got some rural rural experience too how does it change investing from one of the major cities like Edmonton or Calgary to the smaller municipalities, the hamlets, the rural? So just as an example, to get a development permit or zoning change in Edmonton's about four or five months and Calgary's like six months kind of thing. I, I wanted, I had a, I had a house, I had a fourplex in one of these fourplexes in Caroline, for example, that had an extra 50 feet on the side that I wanted to sever and I wanted to to build something there. So I went to the town office, which is just, you know, a, a job shack kind of thing. It's like a double wide trailer is, is town hall. And the lady comes up and I, I said what I want to do. And she says, well, if you give kind of a drawing, it didn't even have to be an actual blueprint. Give us a drawing and a written down version of what you want to do. And Doug and I'll talk about it over lunch. So, I mean, that's, that can be the difference of, <laughs> of approval process, depending on where you want to be. So I thought that was a, a good story there. So. Did you buy the lunch by chance? I, I did. Yeah. So, <laughs> so 
Doug was the town officer. And, and, and so anyway, it was funny. Just, yeah, just come by, drop it off. Doesn't even have to be to scale or anything. Just tell us what you want to do and we'll vote on it. So, okay. Funny. <laughs> Very interesting. I, I'm always interested in how the different bureaucracies and different municipalities work. And obviously the less or the smaller the population, the less red tape you have. So usually not always it also it you know I, I tend i try not to be political but it can be quite you know take i always give the example of vancouver right so or is awful to be quite blunt and they're kind of a left-wing progressive government so read that into what you will it takes about two years vancouver's the same thing toronto's two years an hour up the road in langford it takes two to three months to get approved parksville and qualicum are four to five months the nine was eight months souk is like a year so it's interesting that just you know, literally across the highway or or 10 minutes away, you know, life can be entirely different. So in the course, we focus a lot on, you know, making sure you're in the right municipality and the right community. Because even if you're pro-development, like let's say Edmonton's really pro-development, there could be communities or neighborhoods in there that aren't, right? Where the kind of the NIMBY, not in my backyard crowd rules, right? So you do have to kind of watch where, you know, so if you've heard horror stories about development, it's too hard. It takes forever. It's probably because it's in one of these kind of cities that are really, really anti-development or just the bureaucracy, right? So let's say the the two or three month place, they'll ask you, if, you know, so give us this stuff, you know, your drawings of phase one environmental, this, this and this, and, and we'll kind of take a look at it. Toronto, you know, that might be eight pages of stuff that you have to do and all these environmental tests, whatever. And then it's going to go to, you've got to pass through three committees, for example, and then it's got to go to city hall and council has, you know, 32 councillors, whatever, right? So it's just the level of, you know, that's a lot more bureaucracy than, than Flo and Doug at the town office of Caroline, right? So, I mean, it's just the, the, the many layers of bureaucrats, basically. You're, you're working at the speed of bureaucracy, so you want to be in an area where that's as, as small as possible. It sounds fair. Do you have any advice for listeners who are having to deal with or potentially hopefully avoid some of those NIMBY neighborhoods? Yeah, so there's a great example here in, in Calgary, a community called Glamorgan, for example. Now, on paper, it's perfect for my world. In my world, I say, you know, traditionally, all we learn in, in rental in real estate education is flips and rentals, right? So take an existing property, fix it up enough to rent it or fix it up enough to sell it. And then variations on the theme, Airbnb, rent home, but it's all just... Rentals and flips, rentals and flips, right? So I say don't fix up those old buildings. If it's 1949 or earlier, tear it down. The life, the lifespan of a wood building is like 70 years here in North America. For brick, it's like 90. So anything older than 1950, why are we fixing those up? I, I like I think the only reason we renovate those is because people don't know any other way, right? Like they're all that's all we're taught. Rentals and flips. Well, tear those down and replace it with something with higher density a duplex or a fourplex right we've got this housing crisis where there's we're short like five million housing units across the country half million new immigrants coming in where is everybody gonna live right so we need to really increase the the, the density there so as smaller investors that's how we can help right so but you've got that that situation where I, like I said, I think unless it's architecturally or historically valuable and almost, you know, we all know that most of these older houses aren't. So just tear them down. So this Glamorgan is ideal for that on paper, 1950s, 50 foot wide lots, so nice wide lots. So very, you can do a lot with that, right? But if you drive through it, there's zero new stuff, like zero. There's been some, some reno people 
fixing it up, but there's no new modern buildings there, right? So that tells me that the NIMBY crowd is really strong there, right? So what do you do to answer your question? Well, other areas of Calgary, if you drive through them, there's lots of precedent of newer stuff, right? So they've turned down a house and done side-by-side infills or semis, duplexes, whatever you want to call them where you are. Other places, other communities have that plus suited basements. So now there's a little fourplex on that 50-foot lot, right? Or, you know, they're building really aggressive, as I said, in Edmonton. And on a 50-foot lot, you can get three up and three down for a sixplex. If it's a corner lot, it's four up and four down, right? So again, so you're looking for areas where there's precedent, where people are already doing kind of some of the stuff. So Main thing I teach in my courses in and out quick. The second thing is don't paddle upstream. What is the community and the municipality giving you? Like, what do they want, right? Because they're always, there's communities where you just stay away, right? But there's also initiatives like, for example, Calgary in October 6th, they created a brand new zoning code that allows suited basements. So that's, you're going to see a lot more of these suited basements in more areas of the city. Well, okay, so obviously there's a, a, a desire by the city and certain communities to increase density. So work in those areas, or, you know, if they want to see a certain thing, even specific streets we teach, right? So maybe this street right now is a all single family home zone that way, but you know, there's a redevelopment plan or whatever that shows that the city and the community are on board for that being higher density. So now, you know, if you buy one of those properties and you make an application, you're probably not going to have too much of a fight because it's already wanted, right? So don't, again, again I, I get frustrated by when you read these news articles of, of people fighting for two or three years and then still getting denied. Well, stop fighting. Like, just go to where, if you want to do something specific, then find the area where that's allowed. Mm-hmm. If you don't care what you do, then you can work in an area in this area. They want this. Okay, well, I'm, I'm fine developing that or building that, right? So, again, don't paddle upstream. Work with what the municipality and communities are, are giving you. It's amazing how working with the path of progress for municipal, provincial, or federal government makes life a lot easier. And yeah. I'll help you so much. Why are we butting our heads against the wall, right? Like, just, okay, what do you want? Okay, I'll build it. I don't care. I used to say what I was doing, right? I, was, I don't care if the client wants black walls, I'll paint them black. Doesn't matter to me, right? So what's the what's the path of least of least resistance for sure? Absolutely. And I know here in Edmonton, the city's actually giving grants to people who do want to build some of those developments. So right. not only is it they make it easy for you by helping you turn over the zoning, but they'll actually give you money to go do so. Yeah. So you know, and and even so Alberta's ahead of most of the provinces, but Edmonton's even ahead of Calgary. Like even 10 years ago, St. Albert was giving a $25,000 grant to suite of basement, where at the same time, Calgary wasn't even allowing suite of basements, right? So Edmonton's kind of always at the forefront. And even recently, they've come out, Edmonton City Council said, you know, we don't want to see this urban sprawl anymore. It's, it's just getting too expensive. So basically, they're saying 50% of every new application has to be within the inner city because they're expecting as well right so how do you do that well tear down old house build higher density right so there's areas like Garneau which is just south of the river older community 1920s 1930s kind of building the city of Edmonton just unilaterally went in and changed the zoning for the entire community to low-rise multifamily so that's big neon lights to developers and builders hey we don't want to see 1920s crap anymore we want this to be new right so Again, 
don't paddle upstream, right? Like go where they're, they want you to go. Right. So again, it's, it doesn't have to be these horror stories that we, that we, you know, I'm not, I kind of make it sound like it's easy. It's not, but I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't have to be as, as hard as some people make it. <laughs> some people just, I want to build this and I want to build it here. And, okay. Well, maybe not. So very have true. a little flexibility there. Yeah. So <laughs> great advice. So I want I want to circle back around to your best deal, the seven acre land development deal you did in Calgary. Yeah. What were some of the other lessons that you did learn during it? Again, the biggest one is don't do it all. The other thing that was phasing, right? So okay, imagine I've got a rectangular lot and it was basically a U was my internal road. So I've got lots coming off. It flows it's very high on one side and very low on the other so i had walkout basements i had a park i had really nice view lots and whatever right i'm a young guy i don't know what i'm doing i just want to get sales right we all just want to get sales so all 36 units were available for sale so what happens is the nicer units go first right for a lower price nobody knows me there's no show home there's no guarantee that this guy is going to do what he can do so the prices start out low. That's always the way it works, right? People have no vision. So the people that have vision come in and grab the nice lots, right? And so what happens is then you have to do the utilities for the entire project, right? Because I sold one lot here and one over here and one down here and three over here, you know? So what I would have learned in, in, in the future is phasing, right? Okay, so the first, there's going to be six lots for sale here, period, full stop. And lower prices, right? So people come in and they buy those and I build those. So now I have, I'm almost self-funding in a way too, right? Like I don't have this massive cost because now I, you know, I had to upfront the cost for all the pipe in the ground and the road and the, and the box and all that, right? So, but if you just do it a chunk at a time, so let's do this one here and then the next six would be over here and you kind of work down to your home run lot. So by now people can drive in. Okay. Yeah, no, he's for real. I can go in and I can see a show home and wow, he's the quality's good. Okay. I like this. And they're willing to pay more for the home run lots at the bottom. Right. So phasing was kind of the other big thing that I took away from that, that I'll, I would do that in the future as well. That's wonderful advice, actually. I see lots of developers doing that here as well. I never thought about the cost that it would it would be if you did it otherwise. I just thought it was easier to get to. It, it's you want the home run lots, so you want the big sale at the end, because mm -hmm. that's basically where your profit is is the last units. If you're building a tower, you know it's the top two floors that are the profit kind of thing. So, but yeah, if I can, if I can postpone the big costs of pipe in the ground and roads and all that because it you know it's quite expensive to, to do that level of developing if i don't have to do the whole thing all at once then that saves you a ton of money and you can it's not it doesn't save you the money because you're going to end up spending it anyway but you can phase it and like you said for the for a large part you can kind of self-fund so your your borrowing costs are lower and and you, you run less of a risk of, of running into financial problems when you know when the you know the housing crisis of 2008 comes along right? so it's, yeah hopefully we don't have another one of those for multiple different reasons but uh... yeah yeah no that was those were scary times for sure the funny thing was too is is so i remember 
So I'm going through the boom, right? And I can't get a plumber to save my life. I've got framers. And here's the thing too, is I'm building these houses and I'm incurring costs for framing, but I don't have the plumbers to back them up. I had a plumber, but they, July 1st, 2006, I get a call from my plumber. He had a 10 man company. He said he lost six employees that week. They went to other, other jobs for more money. Right. So we limped along. I tried, I put out, you know, I called 24 other plumbing companies, only two responded to my calls and the value of the, the price to do an entire, both sides of a duplex was six grand. The new quotes were like 24. Holy crap. So, you know, you kind of, anyway, so you kind of struggle along anyway. So I got through that September of 20, 2006. I'm literally sitting in the garage of one of the buildings on a, on a stack of drywall, beautiful sunset. Okay. I got this. It, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm past the worst of it. Not three days later, I get a call from the bank, you know, you haven't heard of it yet, but it's going to be a big deal. The subprime mortgage crisis, it's coming. And your loan is up in October. Nothing you've done wrong. We love what you're doing. But our, our, our parent company isn't renewing any loans for smaller builders. So we're going to give you 45 days to get us the $2.5 million you owe us. But, you know, we're going to be good about it. But, yeah, we want our money back, right? And so, holy crap. Holy crap. So anyway, so that was a little bit of up and down and added to the gray hair. <laughs> I would imagine so. How did you get that 250? 2.5 million. Two point, so, sorry, 2.5. I missed the decimal. Yeah. So when you're in a project, so there was already a run up of cost because of the boom, right? So I'd already gone back to them once and say, I need more money, which is entirely, everybody was doing it. All the builders, all these costs had gone crazy, right? So they said, yes, they charge you more money for upfront fees and the interest rate went from 6% to 10%. Now you're sitting there, you, you really can't ever go back to the same well twice. So if you're over schedule, over budget for whatever reason, and all this stuff was out of my control, too bad, so sad. Now you're on the hunt for a new lender. Well, that's exceptionally hard because well, why did the first guy drop you? What's wrong with that? What are, what are the skeletons in the closet that you're not telling me, man? Like, what's going on there? So finally, I found a new lender, but, you know, the fees, the upfront fees, they, they charge are stupid. And then high interest rates and already. So I, I managed to avoid financial ruin and bankruptcy by the skin of my teeth. You know, I found it, but it was it wasn't pretty. It wasn't easy. So... You know, the, the worst part of, of the journey, I was $10 million in debt as I was building and building. And then I hadn't made any, I'd made sales, you know, I'd, I'd had a lot of pre-sales, but nobody had moved in yet. So finally I started moving people in and we got down to that two and a half. Luckily it wasn't, you know, at the 10 million stage, but anyway, so yeah, I've had either through rentals or through this, yeah, I've, I've been in debt $10 million on, on a few occasions and I, you know, typically I don't have a, some people have a problem with that. I don't have a problem sleeping with that until all of a sudden you get that phone call. But so turn my phone off is what I just heard. Turn the phone off. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. That's another why, that's another reason why just pick one of the stages in and out quick. The more you can do to speed that up, the less of a chance you're going to get one of these nasty hooks on the end. Right. So very true. Very true. Yeah, so I'm not trying to scare people away from doing it. Just be smart about how you do it and mm -hmm. the shorter time frame you have, the less risk you have. So 
absolutely love that advice. Yeah. And especially in, you know, in, in kind of chaotic times like this with higher interest rates and stuff like that, strategies that allow you to get in out quick are much more valuable. And, and the more options you have, like one of the things, you know, with these micro strategies I teach in the course, you're not just flips and rentals, two or three options. You know, I give you another nine or 10 options that you can work with. And the more options you have both on the way in. So if I'm looking at that 1930s house right now, I look at it as a potential flip or a rental. Well, with my micro strategies now, there's nine, you know, can we change zoning and density? Can we knock down the house, split it into two, make sure both sides are serviced and then sell like I did there? You know, can I buy the one next door and do a little mini lot assembly? You know, does it have larger than than average? You know, is it an 80 foot lot? You know, what can I do with that? Right. So both on the way in, but also as exit strategies. Right. So if you're doing a flip and it doesn't work out, really, the only option is to kind of sit on it for a while as a rental. Now, if things don't work out the way you want, now you've got more exit strategies on the way out too, which is always extremely valuable. So that's really what I teach you. And I don't guarantee that my stuff is magic. Like no strategies work all the time everywhere. I'm just here to kind of give you more options so you can kind of navigate the waters better. So when stuff happens. I like having more tools in the toolbox. So thank you very much, sir. So I want to switch gears here a little bit. What's the worst deal you've ever done? So I've had close to a thousand tenants. Like I said, all these units, I'm completely out of rentals. I've sold all my rentals. A, they gave me no joy. Like I really didn't like any of that journey. And then on the, on my rentals and flips kind of world, I was always the onsite supervisor guy too. Right. And so it was giving me a lot of grief internally. Like I just hated get it up in the morning. And because I wasn't land developer guy and I, or landlord guy, and I wasn't on-site supervisor guy, right? So worst deals are having to do with rentals. Like, so we've had this seven, we're out of it now, but from 2015 to 2021, we had a six-year recession. And at the same time, you know, we're 25% growth in Ontario. We were getting our butts kicked in, in, in Alberta here. And so 2015 came around, OPEC changed the price of oil, vacancy rates go through the roof, rents drop. Everybody moves back to Newfoundland and, and it's not good. Right. And, and over the next five or six years, costs keep going up, taxes keep going up, insurance went through the roof. They invent new utilities like carbon tax. So they are inventing all these costs and the same time across my portfolio. So for most of 2014 to 2021, let's say I had like 150 doors as rentals on average, buying and selling stuff, but you know kind of on average and on average, my rents dropped $300 per unit times 150 units. So I went from making 10 or $15,000 a month positive cash flow to losing 20, 25 grand a month for three years. So do the math there. That's close to a million bucks. Got a little better. I was only losing 10 grand for 2019, 2020, 2021. So yeah, no, it was, the rents came back a bit, but not a lot. So getting stuck, buying a bunch of stuff in 2014 in some of these secondary and tertiary markets in Alberta proved not to be the smartest investment. So that's why I'm right out of rentals. Like A, I never liked it. And B, it's too up and down. You know, it, it's, it was easy money in Ontario the last few years. And now people are, are finding out maybe it's not, but I, I still don't know. Like it's almost impossible across the entire country to, to cash flow positively a, a single family home. So everybody's going to multifamily on mass. 
the dirty secret there is there's hardly any available once you get out of these courses because if a multifamily cash flows people aren't selling it so you know so it, it's really tough to do the rental thing in canada these days i don't know how or why you would do it in ontario with the the tenant laws and the rent control issues that they have. like i don't get it like somebody I'm, I'm being serious like explain that to me why you even want a rental in ontario I, I don't get that especially with the numbers and like people can just live in your house for free like for months and months like really like what so it's really just because we're Canadian and we're on the honor system that most people pay their rent. Like apparently it's pretty easy not to pay your rent. So why would you put yourself in that position? Anyway, so my worst, my worst investments have always been kind of rentals and just, I just, you know, that's kind of what the course is designed for people that just got tired and bored of rentals and renovations constantly and dealing with tenants and, you know, the tenant moves out, you go in and they were hoarders. Now you've, you've inherited all their crap, you know, and I was literally, I went to, you know, Rona once a weekday for 17 years because of renovating something. Right. And so that gets a little old after a while. And I was the king of nasty too. Like I would, I would get these buildings. So, you know, as a rental, you can get appreciation, you get cash flow, you get mortgage pay down. So there's those three ways to make money. There's also the fourth way if you buy at a lower, you buy crap and fix it up. So kind of sweat equity. That's what I did. So I had buildings that were, you know, uh, flood damage or fire damage or grow ups or, you know, where the, the last person that lived there was cat lady with 14 cats or hoarders, you know, you know, there's a five-year-old pizza and a dead squirrel in there somewhere. And then, you know, I had one building where there was mushrooms and grass growing on the carpet. So I was the king of nasty and eventually you just kind of get get tired of that too right so uh there was a flood right it was a building that i bought in foreclosure out of foreclosure and it had been boarded up for two years the roof leaked so there's mold everywhere and, and mushrooms and grass right and so i did it not because i liked it but because that's made money for me so everything i did was for the money and that's a horrible way to that's kind of one of the things I teach now too, is make sure your, your strategy, whatever it is, aligns with who you are and your personality and what you like. Cause this should be fun too, right? It shouldn't just be about the money. And I got to the point where I was doing huge volume and huge scale. And it was us all about, all about the money. Right. And I hated most of my journey. So, so now I only focus on the stuff I like, and then I delegate. I'm not on site advisor guy anymore. I'll let other people, I let the professionals do what they do best kind of thing. So. That is a wonderful plan. I know personally, I find real estate investing super, super exciting. I often say I have a real estate addiction, but I only touch the things that I like to do. We have a couple of short-term rentals. I know nothing about that world. We let the experts deal with that stuff and I do what I like to do. So yeah. very smart. I, I learned. Hmm. Pardon me. So out of curiosity, you you mentioned this huge portfolio that you were getting rid of over the last, we'll say seven years here. How did you go about exiting out of that? To be honest, during the recession, it was almost impossible to. Like I had, you know, those four fourplexes in Caroline, I listed them with MLS. So real realtors wasn't for sale by owner June of 20, July of 2017. And I sold them in 2021. It was listed on MLS for four years. Nobody wanted them. And it wasn't that I was holding off. Like I was literally at the end, the last two years, it was a, a dollar over mortgage. As was most of the other stuff, the stuff in Lacombe, all this other stuff. Like I was just like, I'm losing money hand over fist. The economy's not turning around. Sell. I'm not stupid. 
but nobody wanted this stuff. And so, you know, you always hear these guys joking, well, if I could find stuff a dollar over mortgage, okay, well, there it was. Nobody wanted it. So because we're in a recession, right? Everybody says, well, I don't want to own stuff in a recession either, right? So it, it finally took a little uptick in the market here in Alberta in 2021 before people, okay, I'll buy it then. So literally I was, yeah, I was on the hook for this stuff. So, you know, you got the other guys, the other gurus that are all about rentals that, well, you know, you can buy it and even if it goes down a little bit, you know that the market's going to go up. Well, not if you're in a six-year recession in Alberta, right? Like that just didn't work. Like, so the numbers, the numbers were never, the value of the buildings were never going to get back up to our bot, like ever. Mm-hmm. So, every, so it, you know, it's frustrating every time you write a check because a boiler is 10 grand because a boiler went, need to be replaced. You know, you're not getting that money back. Like that's just money out the door. You're kissing it goodbye, right? So at that point, yeah. So if you're in a market where you're 25% growth every year, year after year after year, you know, you can fall down and make good money. It's not that hard. But if you're in other areas, you know, it can be tough. And Alberta's that's the down part of Alberta. Like shit happens, right? So you, you look at Saskatchewan and Manitoba and they're just kind of nothing exciting happens there, which is good. <laughs> Ontario get this, you know, Vancouver you get this, and but then you get the occasional that. Alberta's this. So pick your poison, I guess. Again, with Alberta or with Ontario and BC, you gotta deal with the rental laws. So like like yeah, and just as you can tell, I'm a little, little off rentals these days. So so <laughs> that's fair. I quite recently have decided I'm actually gonna be getting a property manager to take care of mine too. I'm I'm just tired of dealing with tenants. Not that they're not nice people. It just takes a lot of time and energy and care away from what I am really passionate about. So, And people ask me, well, didn't you have managers? Yeah, of course. Like I, I don't live in Lacoma, Caroline. Managers take a lot out of out of your pocket. Right? Like they, they, they charge a lot for not doing a lot, to be honest with you. So I would end up firing my apartment project or they'd fire me half the time, you know, because I'd get a, you know, there's tenant moved out. It's time to redo the suite. Yeah, I agree. Let's do the floors, paint. Yeah, it's time to redo that suite. They'd give me a, a, an estimate and it was literally two or three times what I could do it for because I had my own crews and all that. Okay, well, don't worry about it. I'll do it. Well, actually, sir, we don't allow our, our clients to renovate their own house or their own apartments. I said, well, then we got a problem because I'm not paying that. And so, like I said, I got fired a lot. Anyway, so typically what I would end up doing is just hire my own people putting out on Kijiji and looking for an apartment manager. And and so, you know, I would still deal with anything to do with money and I would I would verify the application and I'd approve the people but, and they'd take care of all the on-site stuff. But that's kind of how I, because, you know, 150 doors is a lot, right? And so when you get to that scale, yeah, you can't just kind of let the property managers run rickshaw or what you're doing. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of you know, I, I manage stuff, so I get it. Like it's not an easy job, but like they they charge a lot and tend not to give a lot, to be honest with you. But anyway, again, fair. It's totally off rentals. I tell you, just hated that entire journey, like every second of it. So. And that's fair. It's not for everyone, and uh, for you and I, it it sounds like that might not be the best path. So. People come up to me, but I love my tenants. I said, well, you got three. Like, so I have not close to a thousand and see if you're still on that, on that same train. But anyway, yeah, mm-hmm. so I personally wouldn't be. Yeah. 
But that's what you're taught, right? That's all you know. Okay, you're going to do rentals and flips, like pick your poison, right? And and so we do a really bad job, I think, as an, as an industry, welcoming new people in and giving them all the options, right? Because if you Google real estate investing, everything comes back, rentals and flips, all the podcasts, rentals and flips, like everything, like, like you, you said at the beginning, like listen to Darcy because he's different. Like nobody's talking about these other options, right? That, yeah, you can, you know, lend, you know, most people think rentals and flips and I can't do anything else. So if they don't like it, they kind of just leave the industry, right? Or, well, I've heard about land development, new construction, but that's too hard. It's for the big boys, whatever. They don't realize that, yeah, these with these micro strategies that I teach, you can, you know, you can buy a, a 1930s piece of crap on a 50 foot lot and tear it down. So, you know, everybody else is fighting over the the few rentals and flips that are viable in this sandbox where here, you know, there's an endless supply of old pieces of crap and nobody's playing in the sandbox, right? So significantly less less uh, competition as investors, right? And the other thing now is if you were to tear that house down and build a sixplex, now you've got all these multifamily course students that are graduated and looking for crap that you can sell to. I mean, that's, that's another very high demand right now, especially in, I don't know if it's official or not, but they're calling a, a recession here in Canada. So you get a whole bunch of people flocking to that multifamily because they think it's more stable and you're literally creating product for them. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and it. like I said, there's nothing out there. That was, that's the, that's the dirty secret of those, of these multifamily courses is that nothing's available. It's really, really hard to find stuff because everybody's looking at multifamily now, everybody, right? So it's really, really hard to find that product. So if you can't find it, maybe make your own. That's one of the thoughts I had. If it's okay with you, I want to dive into some of the micro strategies that you teach. I know that's completely off <coughs> our script, way out, but you do such a fantastic job of describing them. Would you be able to just give kind of a quick overview of, of some of them? Sure. So so picture in your mind a 1940s, 800 square foot little bungalow, right? A little tiny thing on a 50 foot lot. So what can you do with that? Well, right now it's just rentals and flips, but... What if you change the zoning or density or usage to allow that to be a fourplex, right? Just change zoning and density, sell that to a builder. You don't have to do anything on site. Next step, knock it down, split the lot in two, make sure both sides are serviced, sell those lots to a builder is an option. Next step is, okay, let's actually get an architect to design that fourplex and get the building permit approved. So now you've got the zoning and density changed. You've got the actual development permits, you've got a zoning permit change, you've got a building permit now. Well, that's a that's a, a shovel-ready project you can sell to a builder. They can literally demolish the house tomorrow, right? Other thing, okay, so maybe I'm on a 35-foot lot, and so everything on the street is 35-foot lot. Well, what if I buy two or three of them, amalgamate that into a 105-foot lot in the inner city? Now that has value to a builder because they're not seeing that kind of, of, of land size anywhere else, right? So there's a value add for you. So basically, we're switching our mindset that the value is in the building, which is where we are as landlords and flippers, to saying the value is in the dirt, right? So how do I get highest and best use? How do I bring out the value of that piece of dirt, right? Let's say it's the opposite. Let's say it's 75 or 80 feet wide lot. What can I do with that? I can sever off the excess and sell that. Maybe I can tear down the house and split that into three. Maybe I can I can do all kinds of stuff, right? So what are the options there? Those kind of things that we teach in the course is being creative and what can you do with that? 
the next step is maybe, you know, maybe it's a 1960s house and it's kind of in that gray area, whether it's okay to tear down or not. Maybe you can sweep the basement and throw a garden suite in the back or, or a laneway house in the back, right? That's big in both Ontario. The Ford government's just said basically almost everything can be, a, you can have three three units on any on any lot. And they just are announcing that in Victoria too, I just heard too. So, so you know, so that's an option too, right? So as I'm as I'm looking for ways to increase my rent, if I want to be a, a, a landlord, suiting the basement and building something in the back now gives me three sources of income for a significantly less than it would cost me to buy three doors, for example, right? So things like that. So, and then there's pure, pure raw land development too, if you want to get into that, like physically taking five acres and splitting it up into 30 units and putting pipe in the ground and all that. So all of this various steps is kind of what we teach in the in the course yes very cool very cool and do you need any special certificates or any of, for any of these strategies no you, you need if you're going to build yourself you need stuff like that in certain areas but i i say don't like you're more valuable as, as an investor finding the next opportunity right so our work is up front finding the next deal finding the right community and municipality finding funding whatever we're going to do once you get to the point where you're going back and forth with the city, let your team do that, right? And then if you're going to physically do work on site, let the professionals do that as well. What kind of team members do you suggest people have? Well, you, you need a realtor for sure. A good a good realtor that kind of gets it, that gets this world. You're going to need a mortgage broker that understands this world as well, because it is a little different. The funding is a little different than than rentals and flips. But then you need a civil engineer or, or a planner, depending on where you are. They are probably going to have on staff a surveyor. If you're going to do the part where you're actually designing the new fourplex, for example, then you need an architect. So those are kind of the the team, you know, along with the normal accountant and, and lawyer kind of thing. It sounds good. And one of the terms you brought up earlier here was highest and best use. Do you mind just breaking down what that is? Yeah. So what can you do on that lot? So highest and best use is what's the best you can do with it? Maybe both physically, what's, what are the, all the things possible? What's allowed by your municipality? Like, so you want to do this, but they're only going to allow this, right? For example, what can you afford financially? Right? So it's, it's, basically almost stream of consciousness. What are all the things I can do with this lot? And then what can I afford to do? What's the city going to let me do? What can I financially do? What can I physically build? And then, you know, so I'm going to suggest that given our housing crisis, a 1940s, 800 square foot piece of crap on a 50 foot lot isn't highest and best use for that 50 feet. So just going to throw that out there. It sounds fair. And for all the listeners out there, highest and best use is actually the first thing that appraisers look at here as well when they're determining land value, no matter what they're doing with it. So right. thank you very much, sir. But if you're buying a house, like just a normal house, like on MLS, appraisers don't look at zoning. They don't, they're just appraising it because they're assuming that family lived here before, family's going to live here after. So the banks don't text tend to get into zoning and order the appraisals, right? So if you can find something that's zoned single family home and you know that the city wants it to be multifamily or higher density, you can typically get it at a lower land value and, and increase the value that way, right? Because that's not something that traditionally the appraisers look at. So. Yeah, it's not in their scope of work. Yeah, <laughs> sounds good. So I want to switch gears here. If it's okay with you, we're actually rolling out a new segment here. What are three things that most people don't know about you? Actually, most people don't know me because I'm 
based in Alberta and I've been lone wolf guy all these years. So nobody's heard of me at all. Like I'm not one of these guys that's been on stage and for a long time, like I've been on stage before, but so basically nobody knows me at all. So that's kind of part of this is just, uh, yeah, I think different, like I'm not the typical rental and flip guy. So other than that, you know, I'm, I'm getting to the point where, you know, done well and I'm just bored and, and tired of the traditional. So yeah, I'm, I'm teaching new stuff. So I played at a high level for a lot of years and now I'm, I'm getting a real kick out of teaching other people how to do it as well. Very cool. Very cool. If I remember correctly, you've also done a very interesting racetrack deal. We have. Yeah. So basically there was a new racetrack and casino built in Northeast Calgary, right next to Cross Iron Mall and all that. And I was, I was brought in, I was, we were in credit protection. So basically chapter 11. So we were like $108 million in debt and the, the team before me had kind of tried to build this Taj Mahal and stumbled with the, the downturn in 08 and 09. So I was brought in to kind of turn that around. And then we did. So now it's, we partnered with Century Gaming and uh, out of Austria. And and right now it's, it took some time, but yeah, we're, there's a beautiful track there and horses are running around the track and people are putting money in slot machines. So it was a really, it turned out to be a really, really good thing. Sounds good. I hope some, yeah, I hope it's okay. I brought that up and it sounds good. And I'm hoping some of the listeners can reach out to you about that later on. Yeah. And we're getting to the end of our, our show here. So I want to try and wrap up. Yeah. I got another call here at 10, but anyway, so or my time. Yeah, so. <laughs> Sounds good. Did you want to break it off? I I can go until the other person shows up, I guess. So, yeah, so. Okay. I, I have one last segment here. What advice would you give to new investors in your area who are looking to scale their business? So basically, yeah. Don't just pick the strategy first. Like don't just like do some investigation into all the different strategies and figure out what matches your personality best. You know, I'm, I'm there's pros and cons with everything, even the micro strategies. But again, my, my belief is that the more bullets in your gun that you have, the better, but don't just go right into flips. Don't go right into rentals. Don't even go right into my stuff. Like what is going to make you happy so you can make money from the investment and, and have fun doing it. Right. Cause let's, let's not, Let's not be like me and and just do everything for the money. The other part is I was lone wolf guys. I said so. Have an operational partner, like whether it's a family member, your spouse, partner, whatever, somebody who's strong where you're weak, and vice versa, right? Like I should have had that. I like I was really good at the hunt and finding stuff, and I needed an operational partner, right? So I should have had that ying to my yang. So that's that's really important. I, I stress that all the time and focus. So I was all over the place and and didn't benefit from that. It was, again, it was all about the money. So the next thing, the next potential project, does that look like it's going to make some money? All right, let's do that. If you focus on one thing, you get efficiencies, your team gets better, you know what you're looking for, you become known for that thing. So people will bring you deals. So focus. So those three things, like because personality matches your strategy, focus and, and get an operation partner. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much, sir. Of course. And just before we close out here, where can people find out more about you? Just go to my website. So darcymarler.com, all the books and the, the courses and all there. I've got a webinar, you know, I'm on YouTube every week. I do a YouTube video so you can subscribe to that and, and start learning about this development world. And again, it's not just for the big boys. It's, it's, you know, you can scale it down to that 50 foot lot. It doesn't have to be five acres. And, and there's all kinds of strategies that let you get in for, for not a huge amount of money. So it's actually a lot of pluses. Great return on time too, because again, your team is doing most of the work. So per unit, 
you're probably making more per project and spending much less time doing it. So we don't always talk about return on time either. We talk about return on investment all the time, but not return on time. So again, I, I, I think differently and, and uh, bring some different things to the forefront, I think. But Sounds good. Well, I will let you go. I do want to hop on that return on time, maybe another time that yeah. I can interview you. For sure. But Darcy, thank you very much. No worries. I really, really had fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks.